greetings to this part of the service this morning. It's a blessing we can gather together, and I appreciate the thoughts that were shared in both messages so far. I um, think I needed to hear both of them. I'm also thankful that um, that uh, the governor made it clear that he never did forbid religious gatherings. So we are, have that going for us. So I think I left my notes down here somewhere. <clears throat> Hopefully not at home. So, are we going to hear a Mother's Day message again? So, well, I'm going to go back to uh, 2 Corinthians, where I had started a while ago and got interrupted. And it's, of course, an unusual letter. It's, I knew it's going to be a challenge in some ways for me to go through the letter because it's not a letter of precept or it's not a letter of law. It's not a letter of teaching by principle or teaching by reason argument. It's it's a letter that leads by example. It's a personal letter. And and so if you if you get well like we had there in Romans in Romans uh thirteen this morning, you just had it stated out this is how we should relate and this is how we should do and it's more propositional in nature and it's easier to develop some direction from a message like that, from a text like that. Second uh, Corinthians is not that way. It may have small portions of that in there, but it's a mostly a letter from the heart of Paul. Uh, in fact, it could be called in some ways a pastoral epistle because it's a it's so intensely personal to a church. So. Um, we want to look at that and and learn by the example. Like uh, I think someone had said, this this epistle will mentor you. It will disciple you, as we see Paul Paul's heart revealed. And a little bit of recap. He, as an apostle, had had his authority seriously challenged. By this church that he had spent a significant part of his life. This church was there because he came to Corinth. And it was there because God told him, stay here. I have many people here. And he poured his life out. And now, several years later, his authority and his apostleship is severely challenged. That's how life goes. So um, 
Paul was encouraged by good news from Titus. Titus had brought some good news, and Paul was encouraged. And so then he write, wrote this letter. But it's still a fragile relationship. It's fragile. And uh, that's why he writes the letter that he does. So why don't we read Second Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 12. And you can follow along. And we'll read into the, the whole, the whole passage there is all one, one section and we'll read into chapter two, verse to verse four. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. And I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before, that ye might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you be brought on my way towards Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness, or the things that I purpose, do I purpose it according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me, and Silvanius, and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us, is God who has also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. But I determined this within myself, with myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness, for if I make you sorry, who is he that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. <clears throat> there was a pastor's wife woke up one night, and she noticed her husband was not in bed beside her, so she got up, looked, and he was on the floor beside the bed on his hands and knees. And he had his arms stretched out in front of him like this. 
He was having some kind of a sleepwalking nightmare. So she asked him, what are you doing? And he said, well, I have this pyramid of marbles on my hand, and if I move, they'll all come crashing down. Now, many dreams, I could tell you my dreams last night, and they had to do with what happened yesterday. Many dreams have to do in some kind of reflection of what you're going through. What we experience in life during the daytime. This man on the floor, this pastor on the floor, was demonstrating the experiences that he was going through. And that pyramid of marbles, that marbles was his congregation. It's how he felt in shepherding the flock. And um, he knows better than most, probably, the forces that are at work in his congregation, the fragile reality of things. He knows the hidden sins of some. He knows the family difficulties of others. He knows the conflicts between members, the dissatisfactions, the lifestyle inconsistencies, the differing views of what the church should be and where it should go. All this and more can make a pastor feel that one wrong move and the entire thing will come crashing down. It's enough to give him nightmares. Now, I want to acknowledge that is a faithless view of the church, okay? (laughs) It's not a faithful view. It's the faithless view of the church of Jesus Christ. But don't write it off just that quickly and say, well, that's a faithless view. To a lesser or greater degree, that is every congregation. And... To Paul, that is a little bit of what you can get a little bit of a glimpse of a picture of his heart. As he was dealing with this congregation, he knew what was there and he knew what he was dealing with. And it was fragile. So, this morning, we will look at the first issue that he addresses to his people. And this was the first issue. Paul had changed his plans. He had said he would come and visit them, and then he didn't come. He didn't keep his word, so they said. Well, this is actually what Paul had said, and I'm gonna, you don't have to turn there, but I'm gonna read a few scriptures of things that he had said to the Corinthian church. In the end of his first letter, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 5-7, he said this. He said, Now I will come to unto you when I pass through Macedonia. For I do, do pass through Macedonia. Now let me, let me get um, this map here and explain a little clearly. I'm still missing a page here. Let's see here. Yeah. 
So Paul was writing a letter to them, the first Corinthians. He was in um, he was in Ephesus when he wrote the first letter. And he said, well, let me read it. I shall pass through you, here's Corinth, when I go to Macedonia. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you. So he's going to spend some time there. That you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go, for I do not see you now by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. So he was going to come from Ephesus. He's going to come to Corinth and go up to Macedonia. And then he was going to come down and go back to Judea. Back there eventually. So he's going to visit him twice. So, but what he did, instead of coming over here, he went up this way. And it was somewhere in Macedonia, in one of those cities I didn't check, where actually Titus came and gave him word. So he didn't come. So Paul had changed his plans. Had changed his itinerary. Now Paul had, can we call them enemies in Corinth? In the church here, he had some enemies. Or at least people who didn't like him. Now, there's nothing new there. Any preacher, any godly person, any sincere disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will have detractors. That's the human experience. If if we live in a fallen world, if you have, if you are a sincere follower of Jesus Christ, you will have people who criticize you. Think it not strange if you get criticized for following the Lord Jesus. There were always, and it would be nice, it would be nice if it always would come from non-Christians, but it doesn't. That the people who are out front, the movers, the shakers, they face it the most. As the saying goes, if you want to be a leader, take one step ahead of your people. But if you want to be a martyr, go ten steps ahead. Well, Paul was probably a ten steps ahead. He was the premier church planter in this part of the world there. Oh, that entire area. Paul was the major church planter. And he had the ambition and he had the zeal and he had impact. And that made him a visible target for people who did not like his message. And it didn't matter if they were Jews or if they were pagans or what they were. He was a visible target. But anyhow, there were false teachers at Corinth that stirred the people against Paul. And they wished to sway the church away from Paul after them. And they used the fact that he didn't come when the church had expected him to come. 
they claimed because of that that he's fickle, that he's actually dishonest, that he is unqualified to be an apostle. And, and because they, this, this seemingly inconsistency in Paul's life, they were making hay when the sun was shining for them. Well, what do you think of someone who says, I'll stop by, and then they don't? What do you think of such a person? Well, if you given the benefit of the doubt, and you had some prior trust in the person, you might say, well, maybe something happened and he couldn't come. Would that be a reasonable explanation? But if you don't like that person, and you want to actually diminish his influence and exert your own, you might capitalize on that event and say something. You might actually... um, you might actually then tear down his character and his integrity. You would not give him the benefit of the doubt if you were against him. So let's imagine you are at Corinth or let's say any given situation. You don't have to go to your in Corinth. You can put yourself in a situation here that I'll describe. There are two sides to a narrative. Some are saying, now, I'm going to, this is a narrative here, but you can put any narrative you want. Some are saying something happened to Paul that he couldn't come. Some, something happened and he, he, something outside of his control kept him from coming. The other side says Paul never intended to come. He, when he told us to come, he was flat out lying. And he knew he was lying. That's who Paul is. He can't be trusted. And since his character is so bad, we shouldn't listen to his message either. We must stop looking at him as an apostle and we must reject him. And so you are the person in the middle. Which side, which narrative shall you believe? Why didn't he come? Which is true. Now I'd like to ask you, think a little bit. Those two narratives that I described to you, which one was true? Neither is true. If you know the reason why Paul didn't come, the narrative I described to you, neither of them is true. It's often that way. There are two sides of an issue, and then there's the truth. So neither of these sides presented were entirely true. Now, one of those sides was much closer to the truth than the other. And that's often true, too. That's often true also. The assumption on the one side was almost correct. So when we say neither side is true, there's this side and there's this side and then there's the truth, that does not mean that Either side is equally true. That's not often the case. But it's often true that neither side is totally true. Neither side had the information to make the correct determination of what was true. As we'll see soon. But as is true today, the critical people get an ear. 
And that fact we'll see later in this letter that there were some people who had actually developed a full-fledged conspiracy theory about the Apostle Paul. There's nothing new here again. Nothing new under the sun. But though most of the church did not totally buy into that full-fledged conspiracy theory, it did bring questions in their mind. And that's often what conspiracy theories do. You might not believe them, but it may make you, hmm, I wonder. Is Paul really who we thought he was? He's, after all, he's not the eloquent speaker like Apollos is. He doesn't have the dynamic fury of Peter. Maybe it's true, or maybe it's partly true what these people are saying about Paul. After all, he didn't come when he said he would. So the conspiracy storyline doesn't make, does seem to make some sense. After all, how can you disprove it? And that's how conspiracies are. They take enough of, of an angle of truth, seemingly, that it seems plausible. Actually, ever since Paul had first visited Corinth and his first correspondence with them, some had actually arrogantly boasted that Paul won't come again. In 1 Corinthians 4, 18 and 19, it says, Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. So some were saying he's not going to come. Paul said, I am going to come if the Lord will. But some had said he won't come. And he didn't come. So we're right. See, we told you. Now, even if you are or have been faithful to the apostle, that's pretty hard to absorb. That kind of accusation when you don't know why is pretty hard to absorb. And you may begin to think critical thoughts as well. He must not love us. He must not care about us. Otherwise, he would visit us. And I wonder about all the other things he had told us. Are they really true? These are the issues that Paul is addressing. He needs to address in this church. Okay, Second Corinthians, I'm going to read a few verses, just a part of a few verses. He said, I hope you will fully acknowledge, this is verse 13 and verse 14, just as you did partially acknowledge us. I hope you will fully acknowledge just as you did partially acknowledge us. That's in the ESV. Acknowledge can mean understand. I hope you will fully understand even as you have partially understand, understood. Paul knows that they do not know the entire story. They do not see the whole picture. They do not know why Paul changed his mind. They were uninformed. You see, a lot of criticism we have for other people is because we are uninformed. We only know in part... And then we fill in what we don't know with our 
well, some of our preconceived opinions and of our logical conclusions, and we fill in what we don't know, and then we create a whole picture with only pieces. And then we talk. No, no, you don't. I do. (laughs) And we usually don't talk directly to the people involved. We talk to other people. To others who don't know either. Or who share similar preconceived notions like you do. I know we do that because I have done that. And I believe you have done that too. Criticism we have to other people because we are uninformed. So here begins the explanation. It's time to inform the uninformed. I am now going to read from the Phillips paraphrase, which teases out the intended meaning of this passage, starting at verse 15. So you can just follow along because it's, it's a paraphrase. The King James says, in this confidence I was minded. But uh, the paraphrase says like this. Trusting you and believing that you trusted us, our original plan was to pay you a visit first and give you a double treat. We meant to come here to Macedonia after first visiting you. And then come to visit you again on leaving there. That's this whole thing. We were first planning. We were coming to plan to come here and then come up here. And then we're going to come back down again. That's what he's saying here. That's what we were planning. And then you could thus have helped us on our way towards Judea. Because we had to change this plan, does it mean that we are fickle? Do you think I plan with my tongue in my cheek, saying yes and meaning no. We solemnly assure you that as certainly as God is faithful, so we have never given you a message meaning yes and no. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose Silvanus, Timothy, and I have preached to you, is himself no doubtful quantity. He is the divine yes. Every promise of God finds its affirmative in him, and through him can be said the final amen to the glory of God. We owe our position in Christ to this God of positive promise. It is he who has consecrated us to this special work. He who has given us the living guarantee of the spirit in our hearts. Are we then men to say one thing and mean another? Well, I hope you could follow that. Several things we want to note first. And this is not in this passage, but it's what we already had talked about. First thing we do is Paul had not promised to visit them at a certain time. This is what he did say. He said, I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. He said, It may be that I will abide with you and winter with you. And then he said, but I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permit. See, these are words of intent, 
They are not words of promise. And they are hinged on conditions. And the main one is if the Lord permit, if the Lord will. So that's the first thing we want to note is he is not breaking a promise. Next, he defends his character. He said, trusting you and believing that you trusted us, we changed our plans. Does that mean we are fickle? And more importantly, does it mean that all we told about you, about the Lord Jesus, is not true? And so now he ties his character with the message he preaches. Because that is actually what Paul is doing here. If you destroy Paul's character, you will destroy his message. That is the issue. And in fact, I believe that the whole book of Second Corinthians was given not as a defense of Paul personally, but as a defense of the message. He had put years into this church, and it was at risk of being disintegrated because of his character. So he defends his character connected to his message. And he says, we solemnly assure you that as certainly as God is faithful, so we have never given you a message meaning yes and no. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose Sylvanus, Timothy, and I have preached to you, is himself no doubtful quantity. He is the divine yes. Every promise of God finds its affirmative in him, and through him can be said the final amen to the glory of God. Basically, he is saying, we are faithful proclaimers of a faithful God. So let me remind you a little bit about our faithful God. Jesus is God's long-promised Messiah. God made promise after promise after promise after promise. It starts back at, way back right after the fall, he said, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. That was a promise. And then he goes on, that there's going to be a great light dawning, and he says there's going to be a fulfillment of the sacrifices, and he gave promise after promise. And all of those promises came in the person of Jesus Christ. All the promises of God were fulfilled in Jesus. All of them. He is the yea and he is the amen. And then he said, we men, we Silas, Timothy, and I, do you think we preach that great truth and then we just lie? You think we do that? Do you think we speak out of both sides of our mouth? We said we'd come, but we either never intended to come or we just didn't feel like it. Is that how you knew us to be when we were there in your church? Because Paul knew the people at Corinth. He had started the church. He knew the people there. Were we that way? Later on, he asked the obvious question. Uh, later on in, in, the, in the letter, he says, Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walk we not in the same spirit? Walk we not in the same steps? He's challenging them. You know me. You know me to be honest and trustworthy. 
So why didn't you come, Paul? Well, we'll look at that a little later. So he's challenging them that I, he defending his character. He say, you know me, would I do that? Can you believe those people who are telling that about me? And then the third thing, he doesn't only challenge them about doubting his known character. He also reaffirms it is God who called him to the work. Paul hadn't chosen this work. It was God who had arrested him, and it was God that had given him the charge. And he was going to be faithful to God, even to death, like he was. Phillips again, he says, we owe our position in Christ to this God of positive promise. It is he who has consecrated us to this special work. He who has given us the living guarantee of the spirit in our hearts. Are we then meant to say one thing and mean another? If you remember that conspiracy theory that's swirling around at Corinth, that conspiracy theory sought to unfrock him of his apostleship. That's what it tried to, that's what it was attempting to do. His authority. He, he lacked the letters of recommendation that some of those other super teachers had. Later on, he comes back to this defense and he says, your very existence, the very fact that there's a church in Corinth is proof of my apostleship. So you see, he was not just a former leader of the church. He was the first leader. God had completely changed the lives of many people there because he was there. So, had you been given a charge by God? So, you faced some opposition? Or do you get weary? Or do you get disillusioned? Or you're drawn aside, tempted to be drawn aside to temporal things. The charge that God gave you is still your charge. Regardless what comes against you in life, the charge you get is still your charge. So, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, a never dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. That charge will never stop. And then specific charges that are given, they are your charge. Each one of us, in a lesser, uh, one degree or another, each one of us has a charge. Some are given more specific charges than others. The question is, will I, will you do as Jesus did? Jesus had a charge, and he went until he said, it is finished. Paul said, he could say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. But both faced horrendous opposition. Jesus set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. He was going. It was nothing going to stop him. And nothing stopped the Apostle Paul except the Roman sword. What will stop you? What will stop I? It's a question. Will fear, 
Will discouragement? Will a love for the world? So Saul had not promised, Paul had not promised that he, when he would come, he defended his character by reminding them how his character was when he was with them, and he lifted up what they also knew, his calling by God. And, you know, and the extraordinary way in which it happened there in that road to Damascus. So Paul, why didn't you come? <laughs> why didn't you come? That's the question. Well, in Second uh, Corinthians one twenty-three, moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you, I came not as yet unto Corinth. To spare you, I didn't come. So what does that mean, Paul? You didn't come to spare us. Well, what does spare mean? Well, spare... If you go into the strong, it means to be lenient. It means that's one of the definitions, to, uh, to be lenient, to, to treat leniently. And I can, you can understand it best by looking at the opposite, which is in Romans 8, 20, uh, Romans 8, 32, talking about God. God, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with us also freely give us all things? That's the same word with a negative. That basically means that God was not lenient toward the Lord Jesus in that time. Jesus on the cross took the full brunt of everything that was coming to him. There was no sparing. There was no sparing. God didn't spare his son. He took it to the nth degree. The angels did not come and deliver him and spare him. Even the father forsook him, or at least that's how it felt to Jesus. That's a little bit we can have a discussion this Sunday afternoon what actually happened there. But as far as Jesus felt, it was horrible. There was no sparing. And, and that verse there in Romans 8.32 says that God that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with us freely give us all things? Now, how do you think that after God did that to his own son, that he won't now take care of us? That's what the meaning of that verse is. So that's what it means to spare not. But spare, Paul spared the church at Corinth, the people at Corinth. He was lenient to them. Now, <clears throat> reading in Philips again, I declare before God that it was to avoid hurting you that I did not come to Corinth. We are not trying to dominate you and your faith. Your faith is firm enough, but we can work with you to increase your joy. And I made up my mind that I would not pay you another painful visit. For what point is there in my depressing the very people who can give me such joy? The real purpose of my previous letter was, in fact, to save myself from being saddened by those whom I might reasonably expect to bring me joy. I have such confidence in you that my joy depends on all of you. 
I wrote to you in deep distress and out of a most unhappy heart with tears. Not believe me to cause you pain, but to show you how deeply is my care for your welfare. Here's an interesting reality. So now we know why Paul didn't come. He came to be lenient. He came to spare them. He came for another intended purpose. But here's an interesting reality. Paul cared for them and he loved them by staying away. Paul, why didn't you come when you said you were going to come? Because I cared for you. Now, does that make sense? You know, an expression that's popular today, when it speaks of another person, is to, to be there, to be there for me. And, and that assumes that if another person really loves us, they will be there for us in our time of need. Love is therefore measured in the terms of one's presence. To be absent is to fail to love as we ought. It seemed that his actions did not match his words. Paul had urged them to love each other. Remember the first Corinthians 13? Love each other, the charity, the love chapter. He urged them to love each other. And then it seemed like he didn't love them because he didn't come. He insisted he cared very much about them. But when they needed him, he either sent a letter or he sent somebody else. Paul challenges the mindset that you have to be there to love somebody. He points out that one's love to another may sometimes be evident by their absence rather than by their presence. Now, this may be an exception. However, it is a real possibility. And in Paul's case, it was the true reason for his absence. See, Paul is not there for them at the time of their perceived need. This must mean some are saying that Paul doesn't care about them. He doesn't really love them. At the same time, there were others at Corinth that were there. These false teachers were there. And they were caring. So that's an interesting, in, interesting, interesting um, scenario. Let's say it that way. That you had the person who really loved them not there. And then you had the people who were causing so much trouble. They were there. And they were getting the ear. So we got to ask the question, is Paul's absent proof that he didn't care for them as much as he said? Was his absence due to his lack of love and concern? Paul answers that by saying that his absence is a purposeful decision motivated by his love. His absence is an indication of his love. 
And, and we, we just read something that looks like Paul is um, taking an oath. <laughs> I call God record on my soul. And I studied over that. I, where I came at finally with that there is beforehand he was speaking about intent. I intend to come to you if the Lord will. But here he is actually meaning it. This is actually the truth. So he's, he's contrasting some of the statements of intent versus this is actually true. And so he's not speaking flippantly here. He calls God as his witness. This is not a statement of intention. It's the absolute truth. His delay in coming to Corinth was for their benefit to spare them. Paul doesn't want to lord it over their faith. He has confidence that they will stand firm without him there. He had confidence that God, God's ability would help them through and bring about their growth and maturity. And he doesn't think he needs to come right now for that reason. He doesn't have to be there personally for that church to be straightened out right now. He had done his part by coming to them and then by writing them when they needed corrections. Now they needed some time to implement those corrective measures and not enough time had passed yet for them to fully demonstrate that they would be obedient to his correctives, to his instructions. And so if Paul would come too soon, and they're still in this kind of disarray, then Paul would have to be pretty harsh with them. He had said earlier, must I come with a rod? <laughs> um, somewhere in First Corinthians. And, and it could have been pretty messy. So he gave them a letter, he gave them instruction, he sent people, and then he's giving them time, giving them time to respond. And his goal is that when he does come and their response has been good, they can rejoice together at what has happened. That is his intention. So, I want to pause to consider this important principle. Love is sometimes demonstrated, better demonstrated by keeping our distance from those we love and giving them space to succeed or fail. And here I like to say Paul was not a helicopter pastor. Helicopter Parenting can destroy a child as much as neglectful parenting. And so can helicopter pastoring. The micromanaging can be just as destructive as permissiveness. And um, I'm going to take a little bit of an exercise. I'm going to... Um, Diverse a little bit. I don't know. There's no clock here. So I don't know what time we're supposed to be done. I can either skip this part. What time is it, brother? 
11 o'clock. This only take 10 minutes, I think. So we'll go here. Helicopter parenting. What is helicopter parenting? A parent who takes an overprotective or excessive interest in the life of their child or children. They micromanage their children's lives and do not allow them to grow properly up with their own skills. They cause their children to remain dependent on them. So what is Paul doing? This church is not going to be dependent on him. They are going to be less space to grow up. And I thought of an exercise. I look at several different parenting styles and compare them. And then I'm going to see if I can get an answer from you, which one you think best fits the one, the, the uh, style that Paul is using here. Now, the classic characterization of parenting is the one that John preached on years ago at the SDA building. You have authoritarian, you have authoritative, you have permissive, and you have neglectful. Those are the four psychological ways of, of these. But I'm going to use four other categories. It's more, um, more of the outworkings of, of uh, styles. So we're going to have four parenting styles. You have the helicopter, you have the free range, the lawnmower, and you have tiger. Now, we already discussed, described the helicopter. Paul was not that. Free range parents tend to be a bit permissive. They allow their children the freedom to make mistakes, to explore, to try new things without much guidance. They believe their children can learn problem-solving skills through trial and error, and they're convinced that natural consequences are some of life's best teachers. Lawnmower parents are on the other end of the spectrum. They are known for mowing down all the obstacles that threaten their children's chances of success. They may go to great length to prevent their children from experiencing uncomfortable challenges. Tiger parenting becomes a popular term after a certain uh, bestseller book. Tiger parents push their children to succeed with strict rules and a regimented lifestyle that emphasizes hard work over fun. So here are examples of how these parents of each parenting style might respond to a child's request to go to the store. The child asks the parent, may I go to the store? And the helicopter parent says, sure, I'll walk right behind you in the whole process to make sure that you stay safe. The free-range parent says, sure, pick me up some milk while you're there. The lawnmower parent says, sure, I'll walk ahead of you and make sure it's safe, and I'll tell you when it's safe to cross the road. The tiger parent says, no, you need to practice your violin for another hour. So which of these styles fits Paul's, um, fit how Paul related to the Corinthian church? Do any of them fit? No, not directly, do they? None of them fit directly. Was he free range? Well, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, he was. He gave them space, but only so much. He was not a helicopter, and he was not a lawnmower. And I don't know how much of a tiger he was there. 
So, in conclusion here, so Paul explains his action. Just a few points yet in review of this scripture. What did we learn here? Well, if we don't fully know the picture of an issue, we generally summarize it incorrectly in our minds. Therefore, we should refrain from judgment or, if necessary, go to the correct people and discover the truth and hear both sides. Also, conspiracy theories are untruths with a specific goal to tear down someone or some institution and reassert the conspirators' ideas and ideals. And thirdly, love does not always mean being there or doing what that person desires you to do or by providing everything that is desired. Love must also be tough. Sometimes we need to learn how to stand alone, how to obey when no one is looking over our shoulder, to agonize alone in a difficult situation. Sometimes that is right. And it is good to encourage your fellow believers even in difficult relationships. And uh, that's out of First Second Corinthians one twenty four. But we are helpers of your joy. For it's by faith you stand, or you stand firm in your faith. Paul was giving them validation, even in a fragile situation. He gave them validation. I know you, you're, st- you're firm in your faith. You will make it. So may we do that to each other. And um, probably didn't give a title. Paul explains his absence is the title of the message. So could we stand for a closing prayer? Lord, as we, as we have looked into your word, it is your holy word. It is the inspired word that has come from you through the pen of Apostle Paul from his heart, but it comes from your heart. Lord, I pray you deeply and richly instruct us from your word, from the scriptures, how we should act here in 2020 in the situation where we find ourselves in, in the church here at Oasis. We're not at Corinth, but we are here. So I pray, Lord, each one here for your instruction. Open up our hearts, open up our minds, and guide us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, when we should be there for each other, and teach us, Lord, when we should refrain, when we should pull back. And, Lord, I just pray for the wisdom to um, to, to uh, validate, to uh, grace, and to know to know when to say yes and when to say no. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.